we created this, the situation created greater opportunities, applied more pressure and gave more rationalization for fraud. So I think we saw that happen. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me, Alan Sequella. Alan has been and is, I would call him a fraud a risk practitioner an investigator for many years. He's got some great stories. I asked him to come on the pod and he's graciously agreed to do so. So Alan, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, Tom, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Alan, could you tell our audience your professional background? Like most college students, when I first started, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Started off in accounting and then ultimately moved into, back in the day, called law enforcement and did my undergraduate and graduate work in law enforcement at Northern Arizona University. Then went into law enforcement for a short time and became a polygraph examiner in the law enforcement capacity. While I was doing it, I was seeing all the different types of activities that were going on in corporations with embezzlement and fraud. And I was actually asked to do an investigation in a company with the polygraph. And I did it. Later, I was recruited to a corporation in Los Angeles and moved from Arizona to Los Angeles to take on internal investigative type role. And throughout my career, I moved to a couple of different companies from investigator to management to director of security investigations at my last position, which was Cox Communications, where I led a team of investigators, certified fraud examiners, cyber guys, et cetera, where we worked collaboratively to investigate crimes internally and externally against the company. And recently took a retirement last June. I took an early retirement buyout and decided to go back into where I really started as a graduate assistant. I loved teaching. I liked mentoring the kids. And I liked finding ways to get them introduced to both the secure corporate security world as well as uh, fraud investigating. And maybe through this podcast, we'll talk a little bit about how those two functions intersect and work together. And of course, when they do work together, it becomes a much more effective fraud prevention program. One of the reports that I rely on quite a bit and find incredibly useful for information is the ACFE report to the nations. And a new edition has come out for 2022. And I guess you probably couldn't say the results were positive because of the the huge numbers of fraud they report, but it's informative. And so the first thing I wanted to ask is really from your perspective, having done this, particularly in the corporate world, how big a problem is fraud in the corporate world. And then if we could maybe move to corruption, if if you could talk about that and, and why does it continue to be the problem it has been your and my entire career? It's interesting. And yeah, I read the report. I'm on the ACFE uh, website all the time. I found it quite interesting, but not surprising. What's probably even more alarming is those numbers, in my opinion, are understated. In a corporate world, because whether you're a private company or a publicly traded company, there's a lot more that goes on that's never reported. You know, I saw the uh, the numbers in the report to the nations when they brought the prosecution at close to 50% or so. That doesn't happen. It's actually where I came from was less than 5%. A lot of this stuff, we don't want to get out. It could be embarrassing. It could damage the brand. One thing I did agree on, on that report is the direction, and we were going the same direction, less criminal prosecution, more civil recovery. So we can talk more about that later. 
there's a lot of things that are contributing to it. I think on the fraud side, it's just one of those types of crimes that I hate to say it. It's almost like folks don't want to know or believe it exists to the point that it is. And I think the average citizen doesn't really see it as a violent crime. I teach a white collar crime class here at the university, and we talk about the comparison between white collar crime and street crimes, which are more of the violent ones. And it's interesting how the comparisons and are very different in many ways in the way they're prosecuted, the sentences they receive, and what the perception is. So I think certainly the perception of, of white collar crime and fraud in general doesn't have the same stigma attached to it. But also there's cultural issues, there's issues within the company itself that allow it to continue because they just don't want to address it. From my standpoint, of course, being an investigative person, the best deterrent, of course, is prosecution, make an example. But at the same time, I understand a corporation's feeling about, you know what, we just want to make this one go away. We don't want the publicity on this. Now, on the corruption side, it's also interesting, the FCPA, I just did a debate in, in one of my classes on that very topic. The prompt was, should we keep it? Should the United States stick with it or abandon it? And very interesting, the students who are pretty astute said, no, it actually makes us less competitive. Well, we argued it back and forth, but I think the perception of even the FCPA and the way it's enforced across the world for those who participate, it's not equal. And so there's a different standard in other countries and the way bribes are looked at and corruption. So it's very difficult outside of the United States when you're dealing with other companies and trying to do business with them. So I think that's going to continue as long as we operate in those countries where corruption and bribes are just a part of doing business. Helen, one of the things that has always interested me about the report to the nations is the consistent message that one of the best fraud detection strategies you could have, perhaps not prevention, but detection is internal reporting and whistleblowers. If we took a different approach to that topic of internal reporting and whistleblowers, the government says that's a key component of an anti-corruption compliance program. But I wanted to pose the question to you as a fraud risk investigator, how do you view internal reporting and whistleblowing? Is it really that strong a detection prong? And how did you use it over your professional career? So I've seen it used very effectively in some organizations and not so much in others. It's very important. I think all corporate investigative folks will agree it's a key element to a fraud prevention program. Where I found it to be most successful is when it's highly publicized. I worked in one organization as they had an ethics line, you know, fraud whistleblowing hotline, but they didn't want to share it. They said, we have one, but we really don't want to publicize it. It's really not our culture to put it out there. Conversely, those who did had a much better job because it's not just about reporting the crime. The hotlines deter crime. If they know it's out there, it's going to prevent versus always going after the person. Obviously, key is prevention. And so it has to be a well-publicized program. And that starts with onboarding. When you bring someone in, they need to know about it. First day of employment. I'd like to maybe ask about move from fraud detection to fraud prevention. What in your mind are some of the key elements a corporation, a compliance officer, or a fraud prevention expert such as yourself would employ for that prong of a fraud prevention program? Certainly, you have to do the risk assessments. You got your governance. You got your detection monitoring and other components of a risk of a fraud risk management program. You know, but key, like we talked about, certainly is prevention. I think that in my career, what I found most effective, of course, whistleblower hotlines key. You got to have that. We also have to look at the way we do business. And so, for example, tying bonuses to individual performance is always a risky endeavor. It tends to 
cause folks to take those chances and they're riding on the fence or right in that gray area. So I think companies that have done a good job to move towards more of a group performance-based type approach to rewarding and incentivizing employees is a great tactic. You have to look at more communication of fraud prevention to the highest risk area. So as we look at the top, like operations and sales and accounting, those folks that tend to be most active in the fraud area, more targeted specific messaging to them, just so that they know that the things are out there and we're looking. I think it's also important to implement something that I don't see too often. We have a lot of good programs out there. One that's been most effective, and I'm gonna talk more about it later on for the future, is implementing behavior-based surveys. A lot of companies do have opinion surveys, how the employee opinion surveys, how you doing, how things, how's it to work here? Those don't generally give you enough information. More of the behavior-based surveys will give you a lot more. And in addition to that, it, it calls out the whistleblower. Instead of waiting for the whistleblower to get to the point where they're frustrated and they decide to call the hotline, this particular methodology is more proactive and preventative. So it's something I think we'll see in the future. And I'm really pretty excited about it. Well, let's turn to a little bit broader picture now, because certainly over the past couple of years during the height of the pandemic, and hopefully even now as we're moving to some different type of phase of the pandemic, we've seen fraud risks increase, huge amounts of money dumped into the economy, healthcare becoming very preeminent as well. And then we've overlaid that literally over the past six weeks with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I wanted to put to you how these recent national and international events had an impact on U.S. corporations from the fraud risk perspective. It's a great question. It's been discussed quite a bit with my colleagues across the corporate security and fraud arena. Interestingly enough, and you mentioned COVID because that's where it started. You know, we sent all of our people home at work from home during the two-year period from 18 to 19, then 20 to 21. When we compare our investigative statistics, we saw a 100% increase in case volume and fraud, internal fraud. We also saw a 400% increase in case value. Sending people home created ungodly amount of risk, both from the fraud side, but also from uh, cyber attacks and issues that were existing. We didn't have the right monitoring in place. Most of my peers had the same problems. So as we did the right thing and sent our folks home for COVID, it certainly was beneficial to them. But the amount of stressors our employees were under, and if you look at it, even from a fraud triangle perspective, we sent people home. There was less controls, less monitoring, less supervision. And of course, this significantly increased the opportunities. The pressure of balancing home, work, their spouses, in many cases, their spouses lost their jobs. Managing the kids, homeschooling. Obviously, that corner of the triangle was quite a bit of pressure. And then the rationalization. A lot of these folks felt like they weren't being appreciated. They lost out on promotions. They lost out on recognition. In some cases, they took pay cuts, hour, hour cuts. So we created this, the situation, created greater opportunities, applied more pressure, and gave more rationalizations for fraud. So I think we saw that happen. I think it's going to continue with the international issues. Russia, as well as other unfriendlies like China and North Korea, they're going to take advantage of this opportunity to exploit any opportunities that they can come at us with. So we do expect to see, at least on the cyber side, some additional tax targeted specifically to critical infrastructure and other entities just because of the opportunities right for it, not to mention the election in November. So it's coming. Alan, you've given us several different tactics and strategies that corporations can use to help curb or at least prevent 
fraud. I wanted to ask specifically about a fraud risk assessment. If you were coming into a company, how would you advise them to start their fraud risk program? How would you assess them from that perspective? If you take a look at where most of the opportunities are when it comes to that, it's going to be in small, medium-sized companies, companies that don't have a certified fraud examiner on board. So they're ripe for these types of assessments. So you're certainly going to have to be an assessment period. You're going to have to come in and say, listen, and really, let me step back. Best time to do this is right after an event. It's like security. When there's a breach, when there's a mass shooting, when there is a major fraud case, they're very sensitive at that point. That's the best time to approach them. It's really hard to sell insurance to somebody that can't see they're going to have a problem. It's the same thing with a fraud prevention program. So if I was a consultant and I was going to go after a company, certainly look for those companies who just experienced a major breach or a fraudulent episode or whatever it may be. You're going to have to go in, offer services and do an assessment and obviously help them with building their governance and certainly go through the process of helping them build a fraud detection and monitoring program, as well as fraud prevention, as well as just building it into every aspect of their business. You know, like I said earlier, from the onset and onboarding of employees all the way through leadership training and that annual acknowledgement with signing off on the policy. It's kind of like the cyber folks. They got a good handle on what they're doing. Every time you log into your computer, you see that you're using your company computer. Here's the policy. It's right there in front of you every moment. We need something like that in the fraud world. Those are the kinds of first steps I would take in order to get into a company to help them design a program. I was really intrigued that you mentioned on the onboarding process to begin talking about whistleblowing, to begin talking about internal reporting, to begin talking about hotline. Often in the anti-corruption compliance world, they'll also try to have a message that is something along the lines of we're an ethical company. We do business ethically, things like that. My experience in the corporate world was the messages about fraud, fraud risk, and fraud prevention tended to not be said, frankly. Senior management was afraid if they brought that subject up, they would be accusing people of having a propensity or preponderance to engage in fraud. How can that message of fraud prevention be communicated early and if not often, at least enough to keep it in the the forefront? Or is it really just up to people like you trying to plug holes from the detection side? No, you're right on. You hit it right. The term fraud, embezzlement, corruption, you think about it even from an interrogation standpoint. When I used to do interviews, one of the things you do, you build rapport and credibility with the suspect. You avoid using the harsh terms like embezzlement and fraud because that drives home the message of what we're really there to talk to them about. You have to use alternative words such as business abuse or uh, business disruption, counterproductive work, business things, things like that. You're going to have to rephrase what we're trying to get at in the messaging. And the company I came from did a good job of that. And so you basically restate it so they get it. And then, of course, you introduce the whistleblowing and the hotline and all the other controls in place. So, yes, you're right. Corporations don't like the terminology that we use in fraud. We just have to attach euphemism and make it more palatable for the general audience. And and also at the same time, the CEO will be more satisfied with it. It's really interesting. Our company didn't like to use those terms until we had a major uh, vice president embezzle multi-million dollars. And of course, after that, they were on a headhunt. And of course, it changed their tune a little bit. 
But as time goes, of course, it settles back down. I think that's how you do it. I think you just have to rephrase what we're getting at and use less harsh words to describe what we're trying to prevent. Alan, certainly in my anti-corruption compliance career, when I began, it was policies and procedures written by lawyers, for lawyers, lawyers running the program. We were the land of no, doctor no, the Department of Business Prevention, and lots of other things that have evolved. And one of the evolutions has been the use of data. My sense is in your profession, when you began, you mentioned your law enforcement background, you had strategies and tactics that were brought forward from a different era, although you always had to follow the money. But that data now is equally important in the fraud prevention and detection world as it is in the anti-corruption world. And I wanted to use that if that increase in data is correct. It strikes me that the human fraud prevention specialist is even more important now. And I wonder maybe get your thoughts on, on how you see your profession utilizing data and how they'll do that going forward to hopefully build more robust fraud prevention programs. Yeah, even in a law enforcement world, Tom, uh, big data is certainly something that's helping uh, predict crimes and actually target limited resources towards these areas that tend to have problems. I think, yes, it's going to be relied upon more so. The analysts or the fraud prevention professionals are going to be um, multifaceted and wearing different hats. What I see today, and even the students that are graduating from Embry-Riddle or not, Nautical University in we're offering a financial accounting and fraud examining degree here. And after they graduate, they certainly get their certified fraud examiner if they meet the qualifications for that. But what I'm finding is the new round of fraud experts that are coming out or assumed to be are learning more than just the traditional and where I came from and probably you and others that have been in a while. So yeah, big data is going to be part of that. It's going to be more analysis. It's going to be also, there are going to be some human aspects they're going to need to employ. We're requiring these students to go through interviewing because fraud examiners traditionally are not good interviewers. We're teaching them how to interview and read body language when they do those operational audits and they're asking questions. And if you look for certain signs, we'll give them that as well. The data is going to drive some of the investigative practices. It's also going to help on a prevention side. But the future fraud examiners are going to be interviewers, they're going to be investigators, and they're going to be data analysts and crime analysts for that matter. They're all coming together. I think it's going to make a much stronger, proactive, because that's where we're going. We need to prevent. We're tired of going and react. So proactive prevention is where we need to go. Big data is going to help us get there. I almost thought I heard you say a psychological aspect as well. Oh, absolutely. There is some stuff there as well. You know, if you look at fraud, you got the criminality side, you got the business side. We're coming closer together as we look at who are these people? Yes, we got the fraud triangle. We understand who commits these crimes, but they're so different from street criminals. So we have to look at them differently. These are people that don't have criminal backgrounds for the most part. These are people that grew up with two parents in a household. You know, so different perspective, and we have to go at it differently. And I think you bring the disciplines all together. I think it's going to make a much more robust program in preventing fraud and corruption. Alan, do you have any uh, recommendations for our listeners that we haven't been able to touch on today? Yeah. So. Fortunately, working on the corporate investigation side, so not only did I touch the fraud, I dealt with everything that you can imagine internally and externally, and a lot of the stuff does align like sabotage. You have all types of workplace violence type things and everything from assault to sexual harassment, all these types of things that gave me a lot of exposure, but there is some overlap. One of the things that we started using and we found was also helpful on the fraud 
and white collar crime side is bringing on vendors that did some of this social media monitoring and also looked at the dark web and are looking for information on anything from red flag indicators. We see that 85% of the companies that catch fraud, there's red flag indicators that are displayed. But what about the other 15%? This new generation of fraudsters, yeah, I know the average age is 40, but as we go further, the new generation is using more technology. These companies like LifeRaft Navigator, Topo AI, are doing a great job identifying posts, information, giving us information to act upon quickly. And then the other thing I mentioned slightly was the behavioral type assessments. And this was developed by a couple of university professors out of Georgia Tech and others in the Atlanta area. This is that behavioral type assessment that can really give you a real good picture of what the behaviors are and what's going on in your corporation. It's very similar to, like I said, a survey of opinions, but no, this gets down much deeper and it makes it much more comfortable for a whistleblower who hasn't yet became a whistleblower to speak up. This company that I've used in, in one of the major investigations I was working on where there was 80 suspects, they basically clicked on the link and it took them through a series of questions. You set them up on the computer in a room. At the end of all 80 people, you got five people you need to talk to. The rest of them were pretty much pushed off into the, the green zone, if you will. So this, this company's called, it's another intelligent type company, but it, it's more of a behavioral-based, interviewing-based type process, and it's called forensic. So I'm excited about the technology. I think big data is good. It's going to help you. I think the technology as it involves intelligence and also behavior and psychology, as we bring all this together, like I said, it's going to be extremely useful, not just on fraud, uh, just all types of business disruptive behaviors in a company or organization. So I'm excited about that. I think our listeners, if they want to research some of that, they'll see what these tools are and how they can be used in the battle against fraud. Well, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, the topics we have touched upon, or a greater appreciation of fraud risk, what would be the best way for them to find out? Certainly, if they want to come to me, they can. They can get me at, on LinkedIn. It's Alan Sequella. There's only one out there. <laughs> so I'm real easy to find. I'm also listed in the directory at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University as one of their faculty members. So you can reach me either way. You can, you can get my email address on Embry-Riddle or get me through LinkedIn. I'd be glad and happy to discuss this further. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's been incredibly informative, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you having me on your show. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.